Previously on Misfortune. Forrest Fenn is an 87-year-old former fighter pilot who made his fortune selling art and antiques. He says that in 2010, he hid a treasure chest somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. He's not a, a degreed archaeologist, but uh, that's what he does. I would love if somebody found it tomorrow, but, but if nobody found it for 100 years, that's okay with me too. The only clues to the treasure hidden in a 24-line poem from Fenn's autobiography, The Thrill of the Chase. Why wouldn't an, a man, an elderly man, want to put uh, his treasures in or near a place that means a lot to history? There's a small group of people, there's a certain mentality that people get obsessed with it. And, it, and it's, it's, not, it's not good. It's not, it's not good to take it to an extreme. When you're the mastermind of a million-dollar treasure hunt, you keep tabs on the people who take your hunt too far, get themselves in trouble. You've seen that happen? People take it to an extreme? Yeah. Forrest Fenn knows all about Daryl Seiler. Like what? Well, there was a, some people thrown in jail in Yellowstone for digging holes. People have been been hurt swimming rivers and almost drowned and boats collapsing and I don't blame him it, it, it's a monster that I created with my story but Fenn's monster didn't just consume Daryl it's emptied bank accounts and strained marriages put people in situations they shouldn't have been in but Fenn says all that stuff is not his fault if, if there are people that are saying that I'm taking them into places where they should not be then I don't know how to respond to that. It's not my job to explain a lot of these people who want to go looking for the treasure chest. If they don't know the difference between right and wrong, they should stay at home. In fact, Fenn keeps insisting that the people who get themselves in trouble, they aren't on the right track. The treasure isn't in a dangerous location. Don't go anywhere an 80-year-old man couldn't go. In other words, the treasure hunt is for people with a family, not a death wish. Except that there are... There, what I didn't anticipate was that there's, there's a few seriously crazy people out there. So there's a gap between what Fenn intended for the hunt and what's actually happened. But on some level, all the obsession makes sense. It's a million dollars in a mind-bending riddle. And a chance to be a part of something epic. I'm not looking for somebody to find that treasure chest over spring break. I'm, I'm looking at 100 years from now, maybe 1,000 years from now. Realistically? Realistically. I mean, it could be found tomorrow. I, I've said many times that the treasure chest is difficult to find, but it certainly isn't impossible. But you're not going to happen on it. You're going to have to read the poem. You're going to have to follow the, follow the clues to the treasure chest. And when somebody finds that, they're going to tell myself, good Lord, why did it take me so long to do this? So it's it's a good riddle. What? It's a riddle. It's a good riddle. The kind that that it'll seem obvious once you understand yeah. it. Yeah. But what's not obvious is, what's Fenn's angle on all this? Why did he do this in the first place? What does he get out of hiding a fortune? and sending people out looking for it. And he's even getting it? I had planned it for a long time, but I didn't know how I was going to... 
Planning to do something is one thing, doing it is not always the same. This is Missed Fortune, an Apple original podcast from High Five Content, 30 Minutes West, and Outside Magazine. I'm Peter Frickwright. Back in 2014, if you wanted an interview with Forrest Fenn, all you would do was send him an email. And he'd say, great, come on by the house if you're ever in Santa Fe. And then, if you're me, you'd borrow a car with better gas mileage so you could afford the 1,500 miles to Santa Fe. And you'd sleep in that car in rest stops all the way there. This was not the craziest thing I'd done for a story. After college, I'd spent a winter in Bosnia, hoping I'd find the kind of story that launches a writing career. But I didn't. In 2013, I rode my bike through Myanmar after it opened to foreigners, thinking the magazine world would be hungry for dispatches from a formerly closed-off culture. But it wasn't. And after two big international misfires, I was starting to think of myself less as an aspiring journalist, whose time would come, and more as a failed writer, who was only slightly ahead of everyone else in realizing it. In a word, pulling up to Fenn's house, I was desperate, and on my own kind of treasure hunt. Um, can you start by just describing where we are and, and what we're looking at? Yeah, we're, we're in my, my den, my library, and my home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, we're looking around my walls at my book collection, research material, and rare books, and, and my artifact collection. This is the Egyptian wing right over here. Uh-huh. This was very nearly the first interview I did for this story, which means we're jumping back in time slightly here, to the slim period after Daryl had been arrested and held in jail, but before I'd talked to him or gone to Yellowstone. So I wasn't here to ask Forrest about Daryl. I was here to ask Forrest about Forrest. And this is where most people start. Every serious treasure hunter that I talked to had more than a passing knowledge of Fenn's life and history. Because if you want to know where he hid the treasure, the first question to answer is why he hid the treasure. And the answer to that question, I think, starts in his collection of things. These high-top moxins are ladies, high-top moxins, Comanche and Kiowa. I grew up in central Texas, and that was Comanche and Kiowa territory there in north and into Oklahoma, and that's why I collect artifacts from those tribes. All around us are objects Fenn feels some connection to. Most Native American, but not all. There's a whole wall of ancient moccasins. The proof sheets for the book A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, full of Mark Twain's own pencil markings and ten eagle feather headdresses prominently displayed. And was it just me, or do most kids learn in elementary school that it's illegal to own eagle feathers, unless you're Native American? Can you tell me about these headdresses up here? Those are eagle bonnet, eagle bonnet headdresses. They date... Uh, uh, most of them I got, I inherited my father, but the, the, second, the third one up there I bought the, the year before... They passed a law that you, you can't buy and sell eagle parts. Okay. And I, I paid $20 for that from a, from a lady up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, an Indian woman. Wow. If you had to pick one thing to represent Fenn's collection, that headdress would be a good one. 
I mean, it's a tribal object made out of a once-endangered species purchased the year before owning that object became illegal. It's a perfect microcosm of how Fen operates. And this room full of artifacts seems to suggest a lot of successful operations. But true success isn't being able to afford precious items. True success is not having to be precious about them at all. I have a lot of people come in my home and to look at my collection, I always let them pick up anything they want. They can hold it, they can play it, they can smell it, they can feel how heavy it is. Go in a museum and see how, how far you get when you want to do that. The fact that Fenn is an excellent collector of history, but maybe not the best guardian of it, is kind of a footnote to the story of the treasure hunt. No one really talks about it. But it's also not a footnote that you can ignore if you want to understand Fenn. Has it, have you ever brought anyone here just socially that was critical of this? I don't think so. Why would they be critical? It just seems like... I think you're hung up on the fact that I'm not supposed to be doing this, but everybody loves this. I mean, there's, there's no laws being broken anyplace. But not breaking the law doesn't mean that you're doing the right thing. And Fenn has long been in conflict with the people behind these laws. The archaeologists, academics, and museums trying to protect the history that he wants to collect. And understanding all of this controversy kind of changes the way you look at the treasure hunt. What it's for. Why it exists. Because the hunt may have been designed to be a fun diversion for most people. But in some ways, it's also maybe the final volley in this weird battle that Fenn has been fighting his whole life. His last chance to leave his mark on the world. But before we get to that, let's start with Forrest's version of why he hid the treasure. Can you talk about how, how you came up with the idea for the hunt? Yeah. Uh, uh, in 1988... I developed a cancer. A, a two-hour operation turned into a five-hour operation. I lost a kidney. And my doctor told me that I had a 20% chance of living three years. I was 58 years old. And, uh, it, it, you know, I, I went through all, all the emotions that come normally with that kind of a prognosis. And I finally, after a couple of weeks, I told myself, well, you know, who, who is Forrest Fenn? Who says I can't affect what's going to happen in the future? I don't subscribe to all of these philosophies that I read about. So I started, I got the idea that, that I'm going to hide a treasure. This next part, you know. Fenn wrote a poem, bought a bronze chest, and started filling it with gold coins, gold nuggets, Jade carvings. I finally ended up putting in that treasure chest 265 gold coins. Most of them were American eagles and double eagles. There are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets. Two of them are so large, are larger than a hen's egg. And then I, after all that, I started putting rubies and diamonds and emeralds and sapphires and pre-Columbian gold and there's some jade, ancient Chinese jade figures in there. He said his goal was to make the treasure chest as visually stunning as possible. And after two decades of filling it up, he was pretty happy with it. But he never placed the chest because he beat the cancer. So it wasn't until 2010, when he was 80 years old, that he put it out there 
and self-published his memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, which contained the poem. The original plan had been to die next to his treasure, but without an impending medical condition, he changed his mind about turning the hiding spot into his gravesite. As I was walking back to my car, if, if, if I decide next week that I'm sorry I did this, I, I can still go back and get it. Nobody knows where it is but me, and you know, there's an old saying, two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. So nobody, I've never told anybody where that treasure chest is, and when I die, that secret is going to go to the grave with me. What's gotten lost in the telling over the years is that Fenn never really expected his treasure hunt to get so big. It was friends and family at first. The first run of his book was only a thousand copies. I said, nobody's going to want this book, so I'll just print a thousand copies. Give most of them away. And I did that, but there was a lady in, in Manhattan by the name of Marge Goldsmith. A wonderful lady, a great writer. She heard about it, she came to see me, and she started writing stories. One of the first pieces of real press it got was in Hemispheres, the United Airlines in-flight magazine. Then a story in Newsweek, and a couple of local newspaper articles. But the hunt didn't really catch on until February 2013, when Fenn went on the Today Show. That's when it took off. So you started filling this chest, but what was the goal? I said, if I've got to go... Why don't I just let somebody else have as much fun with this as I've had? This lady from, uh, this reporter from Texas asked me, she said, Mr. Finn, your Thrill of the Chase book, she said, that's kind of a strange book. She said, who is your audience for that book? I said, my audience for my Thrill of the Chase book is every redneck in Texas that has a pickup truck, lost his job, has a wife and eight kids. I said, that's my audience. I want him to throw the kids in the pickup truck and load some sleeping bags there and go looking for the treasure. I mean, get the kids away from their texting machine out of the game room and out into the sunshine. What's better than that? So that's the first answer to the question of why he hid the treasure. Kids, trucks, and sunshine. Forrest Fenn's gift to the world. But it's just way more complicated than that. How did you get to the position in your life that you can bury... 600 or 250 gold coins. Now, I never did, I've never said that I buried the treasure chest. I've said that I hid it. That you, how can you, how did you get to the point in your life that you can hide such a treasure? Well, there are, there are thousands and thousands of people in the United States that have reached the point where they can hide a treasure chest full of gold coins. I mean, that that capability is not unique to me. I'm, the idea may be new, unique, but the capability certainly isn't. My Did you hear him kind of dodge the question? That happened a lot. I'd throw an idea at him, and Fenn would sidestep it. But here's the short version. Fenn grew up in Texas in the 1930s, and the one way he stood out as a kid was his passion for finding and collecting things, especially going out looking for arrowheads with his dad back when that was a common thing to do. A bit of a screw-up in high school, at least in the classroom, Fenn joined the Air Force and became a fighter pilot. He was stationed in Germany, then trained other pilots in Arizona, then went to Vietnam and was shot down twice. Two decades in the military, he says, took him from screw-up 
to something more like a screwdriver. I always thought that there were three kinds of people. There are people that make things happen, there are people that watch things happen, and there are people that don't know what's happening. The Air Force took me from a person that didn't know what was happening to be the person that made things happening. He got out of the Air Force after becoming disillusioned with Vietnam, then moved to Santa Fe, started an art gallery, and began to make things happen. And Finn's ability to make money came down to his skill as a marketer. So, for example, when Fenn saw an artist that he thought was talented but undervalued, he would buy up their work and then publish a book on the artist, making them seem like the next big thing. Then the price would go up and he would sell. So things worked for me, but I, I, had, I, had, I had some assets that were very valuable to me. First of all, I had imagination. And I have guts. No point in having imagination if you don't have enough guts to make your imagination work. And I was willing to, to work hard. Then there was the time that Fenn stumbled across a trove of work by the well-known forger, Elmir Dahori. Most everyone else in the art business ignored the fact that there were good forgers out there. Fenn bought everything he'd found and sold them as forgeries. He made it cool to own a fake. And personally, I really love all these stories about Fenn playing games with supply and demand to milk the art world for money. Good for him. But he was fast and loose enough with the truth that his critics call him a con man. The point of all this is that he got filthy rich making things happen with the wealthy collectors and celebrities that wandered through Santa Fe. And that leads us to the second potential answer to the question of why did Fenn hide a treasure? Because at a certain point, Fenn got so rich selling the paintings and sculptures he'd been talking up, he found himself in a very complicated, high-stakes argument over whether or not the past was for sale. Forrest Fenn was a uh, legally uncontrollable agent of destruction. This is Dr. Eric Blinman, and his title is a mouthful, but bear with me. He's the director of the Office of Archaeological Studies of the Museum of New Mexico of the New Mexico Department of Cultural Affairs. He's been studying the culture of the Southwest since the 1960s, including San Lazaro Pueblo, an archaeological site south of Santa Fe, which Forrest Fenn purchased in the late 80s. Specifically so he could enjoy the process of excavating it and finding things. Fenn so enjoyed finding arrowheads as a kid that he decided to buy and excavate an entire Pueblo as an adult. And not just any Pueblo. San Lazaro dates back to the 12th century. And back then, it probably looked something like a modern apartment complex. You know, we're talking potentially uh, 1,400 rooms. If every family had three rooms, that means there's 500 families. Blumen puts the peak population right around 2,500 people. And life was good in San Lazaro for about 400 years, until right around the year 1500, when the Pueblo got hit with a one-two punch of drought and disease. It seems like the decision to leave was made by everybody, all at once. The... Settlement was abandoned with families leaving all of their possessions in place. 
in the rooms, with ceremonial materials being abandoned in place, with no evidence of violence and no evidence of uh, unburied human burials or buried human burials, for that matter. That last part, the lack of human burials, is important. In the eyes of the few laws designed to protect archaeological sites, it left San Lazaro defenseless. Collecting artifacts on federal and native land has been illegal since 1906, when President Theodore Roosevelt signed the Antiquities Act into law. Up until then, you could pick up whatever you found, and commercial expeditions had been fanning out across the Southwest, looting the nation's history for collectors back in Europe, Russia, and Asia. The Antiquities Act put a stop to that, at least legally. But collecting on your own land was still okay. Then came the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, or ARPA, which was passed in 1979 to modernize the law and tighten restrictions on collectors. But still, as long as you owned the land, you could take what you wanted. The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, was passed in 1990 to keep even landowners from disturbing human remains. But San Lazaro was abandoned in such a way that there aren't really any graves to disturb. Of course, no one fully understood that it contained the motherload of artifacts abandoned in place. Forrest Venn, when he bought it, just got lucky. The relationships between Forrest and the archaeological establishment were obviously tense from the very beginning. Uh, nobody wanted him to excavate it. And Forrest had a personality where he reveled in uh, toying with us. In his memoir, Fenn calls himself an Indiana Jones type, and lots of clickbait internet articles have echoed the sentiment. But remember that in the movies, Harrison Ford played an archaeologist. He was a professor, fighting against looters who were selling to private collectors. One of his famous lines was, that belongs in a museum. No one seems to have noticed that Fenn is actually kind of on the other team. And so after uh, sort of teasing us and being in your face uh, about San Lazaro for probably at least four or five years, Forrest finally stumbled on a room that had materials in it that he recognized were incredibly culturally important, but that were so fragile that he could not physically recover them. Fenn had discovered the oldest ceremonial Kachina masks known to exist. They're still the only masks that predate European contact. And to his credit, he let the professionals handle this one. And then afterwards, he let them stick around for a while to document what he was digging up. Neither Fenn nor the archaeologists were happy the other was there, but the situation was mutually beneficial. Fenn got some legitimacy. The archaeologists got to study the site. I mean, there's a marvelous anecdote uh, early on when there was a whole pile of charcoal resting uh, in his little sort of uh, logistics area. 
And I asked him what it was, and he says, oh, there's a room over there that burned, and this is all the charcoal from the roof, and I've collected it so that I could um, cook my hot dogs and burgers on my barbecue grill when I come out here for lunch. Well, I was able to pull tree ring samples from his charcoal pile, and we were able to get tree ring dates that dated the construction of that room. And if we had not been there, all of it would have gone to grilling burgers. In some ways, Fen was a bull in a china shop. But in others, the destruction maybe wasn't entirely wasteful. If Fen hadn't owned the ruin, it's unlikely that archaeologists would have dug it up. It didn't fit the criteria they used to decide where to dig. But he did own it, and he was already digging it up. And they learned a lot watching him. One of the greatest ironies is that um, we may have actually learned more about the rhythms and details of Galisteo Basin archaeology from the few short years where we were allowed to observe forest excavations than we had learned in a century But rather than bridging a gap between the two sides, this slight vindication pushed them farther apart. Eventually, Fenn stopped letting them on the property. All professional archaeologists dislike anyone who owns land and excavate an Indian ruin on their land and they don't have a PhD in archaeology. Or they don't excavate according to the rules that the archaeologists make for themselves. To hear him tell it, Fenn did right by San Lazaro. He loves this stuff, even more than the archaeologists. He's never sold anything from the ruin. I'll, 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 I'll turn over some dirt with a trowel, and there's a stone axe there that's being laying, that's been resting there for, let's say, 800 years. But why? Who made that? How did he make it? What tools did he make? Why did he leave it there? What did he use it for? What is it? What value is an antique except to tweak your, your mind, to, to take you to a different dimension? To Fenn, the value of an object isn't in the story it tells. It's in the emotion that object can produce for someone. He's basically making an argument that it's okay to own this stuff. Archaeologists and academics say, no, these artifacts belong to the past and should be preserved for the future in a museum. So don't touch them. Fenn says these items belong to the present. So everyone, please touch. What do you say to the idea that, I mean, in a museum you have thousands of people coming through, and if you greatly increase the the chance of something happening, of breaking something, mm-hmm. if you let people touch it, I mean... So what? You have another 500 in the basement, why do we worship these things? Let somebody break one once in a while. It's not that big a deal. Why are we worshiping these things? In other words... Fenn says the museums have more artifacts than they could ever display, which is true. New Mexico's Museum of Indian Arts and Culture has more than 10 million artifacts in its collection. So which object is wasted? The one that gets handled and breaks, or the one locked away in a basement? And what does this have to do with the treasure hunt? Uh, In some ways, the treasure hunt is 
an attempt by Forrest to um, reproduce his perspective in others. He wanted others to uh, appreciate the object and to get excited about discovery with absolutely no sense of history. It might seem like a stretch to say that Fenn, who surrounds himself with artifacts, is somehow anti-history. And yet, when you tour his house, the stories he tells, the things he seems interested in, aren't about history at all. He wants to talk about ownership, where he got something, how he got it, how much he paid. The stuff on his walls are the materials of materialism. At least that's how he talks about them. And the laws that are designed to protect these materials, the Antiquities Act, then ARPA and NAGPRA, those are the laws that Fenn has steadily explored how far he can push the limits. You don't, you don't always know where the edge is unless you go out and look at where the edge is. I never wanted to go over the edge, but I, but I, want, I wanted to use every bit of it up to the edge. I don't know whether that makes any sense or not. I, I, I don't want to break the rules, but I want to stretch them uh, to, to my advantage, of course. Loopholes, call it whatever you want to, sure. This isn't just an academic argument. The tensions between Fenn and the government eventually erupted into a full-on legal battle. Um, on the subject of loopholes and things, uh, some of the people I've talked to said that, that you've sort of been at the heart of investigations into um, things like grave robbing and looting and, and things like that. I, I was, Is I, that a matter of loopholes? or No. I, I've, never, I've never been accused of grave, grave robbing or those things. Who are you talking to? Some uh, government employees, some, some agents. In 1986, federal agents raided more than a dozen homes and businesses dealing in Native American art. Forrest Fenn's gallery wasn't targeted, but in the New York Times story about the raid, he was the first quote. And he was pissed off, saying the feds got it wrong. Then, in 2009, the Bureau of Land Management and FBI did show up and searched Fenn's house as part of Operation Cerberus Action, the largest sting targeting archaeological looting in U.S. history. Problem was, the case went nowhere. It was a huge mess, and basically no one went to jail, especially not Fenn. I was, I was accused... Uh... Of, of doing that in, in, in a sting. It, it wasn't true. They investigated me. They searched my house. And they finally dropped their investigation. And uh, they didn't apologize to me, but, but they did everything but apologize to me. They, they accused me of uh, taking a basket out of a cave in Arizona that was on government property, which, in, which means you're stealing from the government. The, the fact is, it wasn't on government land. It was private property. And I had permission to be in that cave. And, but even if everything they said was true, the statute of limitations ran out 47 years ago. The, 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 the government, in, in many cases, run amok. We see it every day in, in the news. But. Sure. And I should be really clear here that Fenn's right. 
The government had nothing on him. They were fishing. They eventually gave Fenn immunity from prosecution if he agreed not to sue them for the raid. I'm not going to talk about that investigation. Okay. But I'll tell you how it ended. You were... Go ahead. Uh, I can let you read the agreement that the, the, the United States attorney brought to me to sign. It says that, Mr. Fenn, we will hold you immune from all the laws related to this case, and that means ARCPRA, NAGPRA, endangered species, migratory birds. We will hold you immune to all of those laws up until the time you sign this document if you promise not to sue us for falsifying the affidavit in the search warrant. Hmm. Would you like to read it? Sure. Yeah. I read the document, and it says what he said it says. But Forrest Fenn, the marketing genius, knows better than anyone that the truth matters less than perception. That backstory is whatever people are talking about at the time. Back in the 80s, before any of the treasure hunt stuff, Fenn told People magazine... It doesn't matter who you are. It only matters who they think you are. Can we delete that whole thing about with 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 with, with this last subject you're talking about? If we we can leave it alone, huh? We can leave it alone. Okay. Yeah. Um, why don't we? But will you take will you take it out of there? Will you delete it from your radio program? I I can't promise anything. Okay, then I don't want to talk to you anymore. Okay. Um, um, I, I mean, I feel like you backed into me. No, no, no. With, with I mean, that. I've been trying to come at this. Are you still recording? Yeah. Turn it off then. Okay. Uh. Fenn has never said he buried the treasure. But to some degree, the treasure hunt has buried Fenn's past. The controversial parts, at least. I mean, if the feds are trying to drag your name through the mud, give people something else to talk about. But here I was, a kid sleeping in his car, digging for gold. With the mic off, Fenn calmed down, said that the raid and the treasure hunt have nothing to do with each other. And I think that's true, on some levels. Fenn designed the treasure hunt in response to a cancer diagnosis, but also shortly after the feds cracked down on his industry. And then he actually hid the treasure just a year after they raided his house. The treasure hunt sent hordes of hunters into the wilderness, looking for objects on federal property. What's a better middle finger to the agencies that raided you than multiplying your type of presence on the land they're responsible for by the tens of thousands? But I'm not, I'm not looking at at spring break or this next year. I'm looking down the road. I'm looking at, I want, I want people to start, keep getting off their couch uh, 200 years from now. The Rosetta Stone was buried 2,000 years before it was discovered. And I said in my book, don't you know the guy that carved that Rosetta Stone is proud of himself? I... So with, with this in mind that you want to affect the future 2,000 years from now. I guess my question is, do you deserve to? Think of the, I think of the people that have affected... Oh, I don't, no, I don't deserve anything. But, but the Indian that left that arrowhead there uh, 10,000 years ago, did he deserve to leave that there? 
for me to find 10,000 years later? I don't understand. I don't think you understand what you're asking me. Well, maybe I can ask it a little differently. Okay. And maybe this is just our culture, and the culture of the future will be different, mm -hmm. but we tend to romanticize people that we have a connection with from long, long, long ago. And so if you sort of reverse that logic, putting your stuff out there for people to find is an mm -hmm. attempt to romanticize yourself and your story. Okay, let me turn it around and ask you that question. Are you making this this documentary, this radio program, because you you want to enhance your, yourself? Or do you hope somebody will listen to it 200 years from now? Or do you want to play it once on the radio and have some, then throw it in the trash? And do you, do, do you deserve this? I mean, I guess, sure, yeah. I mean, what I'm doing is sort of... Uh, it's, Don't tell me you're doing it for money. I'm, well, I'm not getting paid for this, so. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's accepted. It's normal. It's it's within the realm of expectations. This is you know my job, so of course I'm doing it. But you know, we all there's Longfellow said, "Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints in the sand of time." So Fenn's treasure hunt was his attempt at trading his 15 minutes for 1,500 years, or something like that. And it was working. At least one reporter had driven across the country to spend a couple of hours with him. And I came away from that interview feeling like Fenn's motives may be complicated, but the story he wants to be told about the treasure hunt is that it's simple. As simple as finding something, putting it on the wall of your study. What's your connection to? Is it different for each piece, your connection to it? I don't say that I have a connection to it. I'm, I'm a collector. Are you relate to it? What's your relation? I don't know how you define that term. I, it's just something that, that I acquired because I liked it. After our chess match of an interview, I felt like, for me, the hunt was compromised. It wasn't simple. And every person who got sucked into it was a tiny victory for Fenn. And I wasn't rooting for him. But I was too invested, financially, not to write about it. And I do feel like our interview gave me some insight into his motives. And those do tell us something about where he hid the treasure. The cancer diagnosis and the hope and joy he says he wanted to bring to other people, I think suggest that the treasure was placed not to leave people endlessly hunting for it, but to be found by someone. So we put it somewhere wild, but maybe not terribly remote. Then there are the ways that the treasure hunt is an argument for Fenn's worldview, of the importance of individual emotional connection and ownership over historical context and preservation. The treasure is somewhere special, but that place is likely special only to Fenn, like a fishing hole our camp spot. Because of the federal raid, I think we can assume that this special place, wherever it is, may very well be somewhere where it's not entirely legal to find a treasure, but also not entirely illegal, like a national park. Basically, when I met Daryl two weeks after this interview, and he said he thought the treasure was in Yellowstone, 
I thought he was right. Alright, well, I think I'm about exhausted of uh, Me too. Of questions. Peter, it's nice to see you. Yeah, yeah. Good luck to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hope I appreciate you, all your time. I hope you don't think ill of me. I don't think Forrest Fenn liked me very much, but he cared what I thought about him. He cared what everyone thought. That's why he hid a small fortune in the woods. Daryl thought the world of Fenn, but I was about to find out he wasn't looking for something Fenn could give him. Not really. Okay, Forrest, I really I do appreciate it again. Uh-huh. Thank you. That's next time. Missed Fortune is an Apple original podcast produced by High Five Content in association with 30 Minutes West and Outside Magazine. The show is written and hosted by me, Peter Frickwright, with writing, editing, composing, and sound design by Robbie Carver. Story editing by Michael May. Additional editing by Alex Ward and Tierra Darnell. Additional production by Ann Bailey. Additional field recording by Stephanie Joyce. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Final mix by Stephen Cray. Michael Derman is our line producer. Accounting by Matt Rock. Additional consulting from Gene McHale Waite. The executive producer for High Five Content is Andrew Jacobs. Executive producers for 30 Minutes West are Peter Frickright and Robbie Carver. Thanks to Outside's editor-in-chief, Chris Kyes, and Michael Roberts, director of audio. Legal services provided by Chris Keen and Diana Palacios. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts. And if you like the show, leave us a review. We'll be back next week.